Again, these instructions are clearly intended to institutionalize another rite of remembrance. The Israelites spent their whole history buying back firstborn sons, their own and also of their animals. Remember, the 10th plague didn't just affect people, it affected animals and livestock as well. So they participated in this ritual again and again and again because God wanted them to remember that their freedom came at the cost of a firstborn son. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. The freedom that God's people enjoyed in the Old Testament came at the cost of a firstborn son. How much more is that true for New Testament believers in the church today? Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Exodus chapter 13. Now, I mentioned in a previous episode that there is a certain shape and flow to biblical faith, Old Testament and New. There are redemptive events that are then authoritatively interpreted and then corporately and liturgically commemorated. And that is precisely what we're seeing in this chapter. The redemptive event of the last plague and the subsequent exodus has to be interpreted and commemorated in a certain way in order for it to be properly understood and properly remembered and appreciated by the people of Israel. So God is instituting particular memorials and perpetual ordinances in this chapter. There are two, and they are interwoven on purpose because they mutually interpret and complement each other. We have the consecration of the firstborn in verses 1 to 2, And then we have the Feast of Unleavened Bread in verses 3 to 10. But then we go back to the consecration of the firstborn in verses 11 to 16. It's a sort of sandwich structure intended to help us hear these things in an interconnected way. So let's try to do that. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. All right, so let's pause here. As I said, this consecration of the firstborn is intended as a commemorative rite. It is designed of God to remind his people of the exodus and specifically of the last plague that climactically facilitated the exodus. So in essence, God is saying, you know very well that you deserve the same punishment, the same judgment that fell upon all the households of the Egyptians. You were not better people than them. That wasn't how the decision was made. You were saved by grace through faith. You took shelter under the blood of the lamb, and so the destroying angel passed over you. Your firstborn sons are thus a gift from God. And so this ritual of offering to God, the firstborn son, is a way of saying this child really belongs to you. You could have taken this child. That judgment could have fallen on us. So this child is your child. He belongs to you. Now, practically speaking, obviously, you can't just leave your kid in the temple unless your child's name is Samuel, but that's another story. So there is a buyback process wherein the parents pay a redemption price to buy back the child into their care 
and custody. That's the basic logic here. Now, it also seems that the initial plan was for these firstborn sons to serve as the original priesthood of Israel. Since they were saved by grace, it makes sense for them to give their lives as a service of worship. The Apostle Paul assumes that same logic in Romans 12.1. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Closed quote. So serving God is the appropriate response to being saved by grace. So that appears to have been the initial plan. In a future episode, we'll hear about young men serving Moses as priests before the conscription of the Levite tribe to that task. And then later, when the Levites are designated as the priestly tribe, they are explicitly identified as a substitute moving forward for the firstborn sons of the nation. We read about that in Numbers 8, 17 to 18. Listen to what God says. He says, For all the firstborn among the people of Israel are mine. All right, that's what we've been talking about, both of man and of beast. On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I consecrated them for myself. And I have taken the Levites instead of all the firstborn among the people of Israel. Are you hearing that? See, this whole ritual of bringing your firstborn son to the temple and paying the redemption price, you remember, of course, Mary and Joseph doing that for Jesus, that whole ritual was meant to recall the means by which God saved the people out of Egypt. It was meant to recall the last climactic plague. And it was meant to forge a connection between being saved by grace and responding with a lifetime of priestly service. That principle, of course, applies to the whole nation, as we'll see when we get to Exodus 19. But it is being particularly commemorated in this ritual of the redemption of the firstborn. All right, that brings us to verse 3 and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, For by a strong hand, the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today, in the month of Abib, you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. And on the seventh day, there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt, and it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. So throughout this passage, which is basically a restatement of the instructions we read already in chapter 12, the emphasis is clearly on remembering The Feast of Unleavened Bread is essentially a giant mnemonic device. It was intended to trigger memories 
and to inspire questions. The unleavened bread was supposed to immediately put you back to that night so long ago when you ate roasted lamb in your boots, fully dressed and packed for travel. It was supposed to remind you of that night when the destroying angel visited every house and home in the land of Egypt. It was supposed to remind you of how you felt that night and of how many times you checked to see that your doorposts were fully covered in the fresh spilt blood of the lamb. It was supposed to remind you of your hurried departure from the land of Egypt, heavily laden down with treasures and reparations. When you eat it, you will remember God is powerful. He keeps his word. He is just. He is gracious, and he cares for you. All of that, all of that is supposed to come to mind as you participate in the festival of unleavened bread. And all of that is supposed to come out of your mouth as you participate in this festival as well. You're supposed to capitalize on the oddity of the experience by explaining the symbolism to your children, particularly, the text says, to your firstborn son. Now, there's an expression in this story that has given rise to a particular Jewish tradition that many of us may be familiar with. Verse 9 says that this commemorative event will be as a sign on your hand or as a memorial on your forehead. In contemporary English, we might say, it'll be like a string tied around your finger. It will help you remember something you might be inclined to forget. That's the idea. And of course, it was this verse and the over-literalistic interpretation of this verse that led to the Jewish practice of making phylactery boxes and strapping them on the hands and forehead during weekday morning prayers. R. Alan Cole says helpfully here, over-literalism has always been one danger of the Christian as of the Jewish church, closed quote. That's true, and that is helpful for us to remember. The goal is not to interpret the Bible as literally as possible. The goal is to interpret the Bible as accurately as possible. If a text means to be taken literally, then by all means take it literally. But if it means to be taken metaphorically or symbolically, then of course it would be better to take it that way. Here the Bible is saying that these commemorative events will help us remember because we human beings are inclined to forget. We forget what God has done. We forget where our peace and prosperity came from. Over time, we come to believe ourselves self-made men and women. But the Feast of Unleavened Bread, much like our ordinance or sacrament of communion, reminds us that it is all of grace. Thanks be to God. Pastor Paul, I'd like to jump in here if I can. You said something there that I'd like to unpack a little further. You talked about how parents were supposed to, quote, capitalize on the oddity of these rituals by explaining the symbolism of the event to their children. I love that phrase, by the way, capitalize on the oddity. I I love the idea behind it, but I, I wonder if perhaps we have unwittingly worked against that principle in the modern day church by eliminating as much of the oddity as humanly possible. What are your thoughts? Well, as I've said before, I think the evangelical church often goes ditch to ditch on a lot of these issues. And part of the reason for that is that we don't have as much traditional ballast as some other movements. And so the good news is we can change course a lot faster. But the bad news is we tend to overreact to everything. And we often create our next problem by how we solved our last problem. 
And I think you're right in noticing that we may have done that here. There is a danger in becoming so foreign and so otherworldly that the church becomes inscrutable and indecipherable to the average unsaved person. Obviously, that's bad. But I think over the last 20 to 30 years, we have tried so hard to be seeker-friendly that we've totally lost the oddity function highlighted here. Listen, church is supposed to be a little bit weird. People are (laughs) supposed to feel like something strange is going on. That's kind of the whole idea. So I think we should leave some of the weird in, not to the extent of alienating potential newcomers, but there should be something to debrief in the car on the way home or over lunch with your children and your loved ones. All right. So what kind of weird should we be leaving in our services or maybe even putting back into our services in some cases? Right. Not all weird is created equal, (laughs) but I think there's some good weird. I think that the strangeness, for example, of the ordinances or the sacraments can be very useful. I think your your child might conceivably ask you, you know, uh, Dad, how come the pastor tried to drown that person at church today? <laughs> right? That's a that's a little bit weird, and 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 that can lead to a great conversation about how Jesus died for our sins and rose again on the third day, and how we can die to ourselves and live for Christ, and and how we can die physically but still be raised again on the last day. And I think also some of the words that we say and sing in church can be awed in a useful kind of way. Uh, There's a tendency that I've noticed over the last decade or so to want to update the lyrics to some of the old gospel songs that we uh, still sing in the church. So uh, interposed his precious blood, for example, becomes bought me with his precious blood. And things like that. But but actually, I might argue that leaving those strange words in can actually facilitate gospel conversations. As a worship leader, you could say, in a moment, we're going to sing a song with a strange word in it. What does it mean for the blood of Christ to be interposed? It, it means literally to come between. If a car was about to hit you and I interposed my body, that would mean me taking the hit in place of you. And that's exactly what Jesus did to save our souls. Did you know that? That's what it means to interpose, and that's what Jesus did for us by dying on the cross, right? So you could use that to lead into the oddity, and and that oddity can lead to an amazing gospel conversation if we let it. Yeah, I love that. Leave the oddity, but explain the oddity and use the oddity to create gospel conversations. That's super helpful. We'll jump right back into the story now at verse 11. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, By a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore I sacrificed to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes. 
for by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Again, these instructions are clearly intended to institutionalize another rite of remembrance. The Israelites spent their whole history buying back firstborn sons, their own and also of their animals. Remember, the 10th plague didn't just affect people, it affected animals and livestock as well. So they participated in this ritual again and again and again because God wanted them to remember that their freedom came at the cost of a firstborn son. Douglas Stewart says very plainly here, he says, the ultimate purpose of this instruction was to prepare the Israelites for the death of Christ on their behalf, closed quote. Verse 17, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Now, I've mentioned several times that this whole story is understood in the Bible both as a historical reality and as a paradigmatic illustration, meaning it happened and, in a sense, it is always happening. It is the way of redemption and it illustrates the life and experience of redeemed people. And that's not me being fancy. The Apostle Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 to 6. He says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers. Now, let's just pause. That you represents a majority Gentile congregation. So he's not just talking to fellow Jews to whom this would be obvious. He's talking to all people who are Christians. Gentiles, Jews, men, women, slaves, free, doesn't matter. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our Fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did, closed quote. So we're supposed to be reading this story in order to understand what happened and also so as to understand principles and insights that will help us in our efforts to live faithfully and obediently as God's people. This is our story, the Apostle Paul says. This is the story of faith, the paradigmatic typological theologians would say, story of redemption and faith. In that spirit, let me offer an important insight. God rarely takes the most direct route anywhere. We see that in this story. He's, he is in it clearly for the journey, and he is in it for the lessons that we need to learn 
within that journey. The Israelites, you'll notice, did not take the most direct route from Goshen to the Promised Land. Far from it. They could have journeyed east and then northeast and been there in fairly short order. Now, the text does say that the way of the land of the Philistines would have involved war. Likely not war with the Philistines. They weren't there yet, to the best of our knowledge, although the land came to be associated with the Philistines and known as the land of the Philistines. But the issue at that time was that this whole area was heavily garrisoned by the Egyptians. This was the uh, the entranceway. This was the back door into Egypt, and so it was heavily guarded. God knew that they were going to change their minds if they had to face that kind of obstacle. And so he didn't want them to have to fight their way through roadblock after roadblock, and so he led them on a rather circuitous route. And I'm sure that there was much complaining, much discussion in the camp. Second-guessing God is kind of our national sport as a covenant community. We assume that God is going to do things the way we think it would be best to do those things. And of course, he almost never does. In reality, God is leading the Egyptians here into a trap. He has the Israelites wander around a little bit and then seemingly miss their turn. They should have turned left or east so as to go across the north end of the Red Sea, but they didn't. They kept on wandering south. And when the guards and soldiers manning the east-west road saw them miss their turn, of course, they reported that back. And Pharaoh assumed that like a flock of dumb sheep, they were lost and ripe for the picking. So he musters a chariot brigade, some advanced troops to round them up and bring them home. And this gave God one last chance to demonstrate his total and utter dominance over all earthly powers. And that would be important, as we shall see later. So there was a good reason for this strange and circuitous route. The next time you're thinking about questioning God for his timing or direction, you might want to remember that. We should also note here that Moses was careful to keep the promise that Joseph had made his brothers swear. In Genesis 50, 24 to 25, Joseph secured from his surviving family members a promise that they would take his body and bury his remains in the land of Canaan. Joseph always believed in the promise of God to deliver his people, and he wanted to go with them, and he wanted to be buried in the land that God would provide. So the people left on the route that God had chosen, and they took with them the mummified remains of their forefather, Joseph. They were leaving Egypt the only country they had known for over 400 years. It was new, it was scary, it was almost unbelievable. But the Lord was with them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Thanks be to God. Pastor Paul, I want to go back to something you said near the end of the program audio. You said, God rarely takes the most direct route anywhere. He's in it for the journey, and he's in it for the lessons that we need to learn. Can you unpack that a little bit? I know you didn't say that in reference to our current journey with COVID-19, but I can't help but feel like it might apply in some way. Am I off base here? No, I don't think you're off base. Listen, human beings are always in a hurry. I get that. We, we live short lives, and so detours always seem to us to be a terrible hardship. 
And this pandemic has seemed like one huge inconvenient detour. Some of us have missed out on important birthdays, anniversaries, special trips, family milestones. And so we want this to be over now. But God is always playing the long game. He sees the whole board and he knows what he is doing. In the Exodus story, God had multiple objectives and was working a multidimensional plan, only parts of which he communicated to the people at ground level. So the people at ground level had to learn to trust. They had to trust that God wasn't trying to kill them. They had to trust that God really was in control. They had to trust that God knew what he was doing, and they had to trust that he really did have good and life-giving purposes in mind for them. And the challenge for us is much the same today. This journey has been a lot longer than most of us imagined. It has taken some really frustrating twists and turns. But in the end, it comes down to this. Do you believe that God is in control or do you not? Do you believe that God is good or do you not? Do you believe that God's word is sufficient or do you not? Do you believe that he has life-giving purposes in this for us or do you not? In the end, in the Exodus story, everything worked out for the good of his people and for God's everlasting glory among the nations. And I am convinced that the same will prove true again in this situation that we're all going through now. And I'm hoping, praying, waiting, and watching toward that end. Even still, come Lord Jesus. (laughs) Well, amen to that. As always, friends, if you are looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. Or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes Store or on Google Play. We also want to take this opportunity to let you know that a new series releasing on January 1st on the book of Ezra, dealing with the return from exile and the rebuilding of God's house in Jerusalem, is coming. And as we come back from this Covidian exile, I'm sure there will be plenty of principles and insights for us to glean from this much-neglected book of the Bible. You can find that series, as well as all the archived Bible reading content, over at intotheword.ca. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 